0: Damon Galgut is an award-winning novelist and short story writer. His most recent novel, The Good Doctor, won a regional Commonwealth Writers' Prize for Best Book and was a finalist for the Man Booker Prize and the International Impact Dublin Literary Award. His other books include Small Circle of Beings, The Beautiful Screaming of Pigs, and The Quarry. Damon Galgett lives in Cape Town, South Africa. Welcome to the Bibliophile.
1: Hi, thank you.
0: Now, first of all, The imposter was published in
1: 2008, more or less a year
0: ago. Your style, it's been compared to Kotsias. pared down and sparse. I noticed on your bookshelf you have every one of his, his books.
1: Yeah, you'll have noticed I've got uh, every one of a lot of people's books here. This comparison with Coetzee keeps getting made and it's flattering on one hand.
0: Yeah. to me um, annoying on another
1: well it's, it's not that it's annoying I guess it just becomes a bit of a weight in the end because you, yeah. you feel you'll never get out from this man's shadow and really I had no conscious desire to emulate could see or model myself on him or, or anything
0: it's just natural I suppose you're both south African, and both
1: from Cape Town and yeah. both embattled white men and, and all of that yeah it'd be nice if you were pointing out the differences rather than the similarities from time to time
0: well perhaps we could do that
1: um, maybe not well versed enough, even in could uh, prose to be able to start picking picking things apart, but um, you know i guess I guess we've got a similar bleakness of vision, and uh, that tends to give a superficial resemblance to quite extreme, whereas a lot of other South African writing tends to be quite upbeat and uh, all-embracing
0: these days. These days, yeah. In fact, one of the um, suggestions made by some of the publishing people, Stephen Johnson, who's the head of Random House Strike now, suggests that this new environment has opened up South African writing from a theme of struggle, Mm. of writing against something, to a more positive celebration of whatever the writer wants to say the stories they want to tell you think that's accurate
1: um broadly speaking yeah you know i mean you get into very complicated territory with this because in theory south african writers are free to write about absolutely anything Mm. which, which certainly wasn't the case not when i was growing up not when i started out working practically speaking is that really entirely possible I think South African literature is still very boundaried by, you know, the kind of massive inequalities in the society and and one wishes it wasn't so, I mean not only because we don't want an unequal society, but just as a writer you wish that you could go out in all kinds of directions which are not not freely available in the way they are in maybe other countries and societies. I mean if you write a character for example you have to worry. I mean, if the character is middle-aged or more than middle-aged, what was this person doing in the old days? What moral position did this person hold? Mm-hmm. What you know, choices were made, and so on. So how you, do they you, you, really you,
0: feel about race, for example? Or, well,
1: sure. I mean, uh, it's a, it's an issue. It's a yeah. question. I mean, it's an it's, it's an issue and a question in everybody's lives. Yes. So how would it not be in in the lives of a character in a book? So almost
0: um, like, were you a member of the Nazi party?
1: Well yeah I guess except maybe not so extreme because here I mean the the real emphasis in South African society wasn't on conscripting everybody to join this you know this mass movement that was bent on you know racism the system was kind of limited to particular structures and particular people and the rest of the rest of you know South, South African society white society was required just to go about their business and not Inquire too much and, and, um, Just because
0: things were so great really, Well sure, they, yeah.
1: yeah I mean, great lifestyle uh, As long as you didn't trouble your conscience, I guess So, yeah, there was, a, there was a certain willful blindness involved, I guess And a lot of the writing that's happened in South Africa recently Has been about reversing that blindness, I think There's been a lot of reclaiming of what's been unspoken I mean, a lot of memoirs A lot of, uh, you know, biographies and autobiographies are appearing mm. Which are all about speaking out a history that was you know, suppressed, I think. And then, of course, there's a lot of, you know, retrospective analysis of why this and why that and so on. But all of this is still, you know, obsessively concerned with dissecting South Africa's recent past.
0: The, um, what's her name, Anita Krog, is it? Or Krug?
1: Anki Krog, yeah. Anki
0: Krog, her book about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission.
1: That's a a very obvious text in this connection because the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was obviously... Politically speaking, center stage for quite a long time here.
0: And yet, you know, you talk about boundaries and limits. I mean, Andre Brink wrote in 1973 or 74 about interracial sexual relationships, yes. which is about as taboo in this country as, as you could get. So he was free to write. He got, it was banned, but he was free to write about it, and it got coverage all around the world.
1: Oh sure, but I think uh, maybe, we're, maybe we're speaking at cross-purposes then. When I, when I speak about boundaries, I'm not referring specifically to boundaries of uh, censorship that the state wanted to impose, although of course those existed. I'm, I'm talking about the boundaries set by a topic as morally pressing and urgent as the whole apartheid setup. It meant that if you were a writer born into South African society, there was no innocent story to write. You couldn't just write a love story or... a an escape, well, I mean, you could. I mean, there are writers like Wilbur Smith who spend their lives, you know, writing escapist uh, fantasies of one sort or another. But there was something morally questionable about doing that. And so those are the boundaries I mean, is that if you were serious in your intentions as a writer, you couldn't really escape this central question. It kind of bound everybody up in it.
0: Like the responsibility to, to change be. your society. Well, sure, yeah. contribute yeah. to improving your society
1: right or to you know to face up to this question one way or the other
0: andre brinks book was by the way was looking on darkness
1: right yeah the
0: one that was was written originally in afrikaans and banned and then he wrote it in english
1: right but i mean he clearly set out to write a taboo breaking book and and that in itself was something dictated by the situation we were in i mean there'd be nothing especially controversial about such a book that was written and published now. No. Of.
0: The environment that you're living in dictates that you, you know, it's almost like if you don't write about it, it's a big elephant sitting in the room that you're right. You're avoiding, and people are wondering why, why you're avoiding it.
1: Yeah. My, my second book, which I wrote when I was 24 years old, feels like a very long time ago now.
0: The first one was written at 17. Yeah. Correct?
1: My second novel dealt with a um, very personal incident from my own childhood. I mean, it was about... You know, a severe period of childhood illness that I went through, the effects it had on my family, etc., etc., which in most societies is, you know, you would think is a very fair subject for any novelist to tackle. I mean, it's.
0: Cancer, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I took quite a lot of flack for that book, critically speaking, because here I was at the height of apartheid writing about. Things that were completely personal and that had nothing to do with the more urgent, larger issues that the society was going through. So quite a few people took aim at me on that score, and it was a shock for me. I mean, as a young man, not entirely politicised, not uh, not entirely, yeah, not not really entirely awake to what I'd been born into. So in a way, that was that was a, a kind of waking up for me.
0: It's it's interesting that you mentioned that because Brink had the same experience. He was living in the environment and accepting the way that it was. It took him going to Paris after years at university to encounter black people who were well-read. All he had ever met were ones that were laborers, to encounter black people who were well-read who were studying to be lawyers and and doctors and to open his eyes to the point where he actually felt the need to write something to address uh, along with the student riots in Paris too in in the 60s uh, this sense of responsibility.
1: Well sure I mean you know you can well maybe maybe you can't imagine not uh, having been born into it but if you if you if you were born into South African society, like any child anywhere, you accept the world around mm-hmm. you as the normal world, mm-hmm. and it takes an undoing actually to make you see it differently. You just grow up steeped in particular values. There's a certain order around you, and you accept, on an almost existential level, that that's the way the world was made.
0: Well, plus as we've we've mentioned, it's also a, a, a pretty idyllic.
1: Well, sure, yeah. And as long as you know as long as the black people you are encountering aren't protesting about it, everybody seems to be happy. Mm-hmm. Of course, that didn't last, and of course there was enormous unhappiness but uh, in a certain sense it uh, it takes going into a different sort of backdrop and milieu to make you see things differently i mean you you talk about Brinkping in Paris and you know the student riots and so on i mean there was something similar here for me, I guess, in coming down to the University of Cape Town at uh, the height of the state of emergency and suddenly being, you know, university campuses everywhere are always uh, hotbeds of protest and the same thing was happening here and suddenly being amongst my peers and equals, a multiracial group to some extent, uh, who were being arrested and beaten and, you know, there were protests going on. It It was a... A kind of wake-up call, and that that sort of coincided with, you know, the writing of that uh, book, small circle of beings that I already mentioned. So, mm. in a way, you you kind of had to leave your home, leave the the backdrop you grew up with, in order to see it differently.
0: Yeah, it's almost as if uh, scales have been right removed from your your eyes,
1: which is maybe odd if you're looking at it, you know from the perspective of a Canadian, for example, because uh, what you were born into is so manifestly different that it must be obvious from that distance how very wrong and uh, perverse South African society must have been.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, being born in Canada as a child, I guess you wouldn't even really experience this underlying tension or would you, subconsciously?
1: Well, I guess adults tend to protect children from awareness of any such thing. I I remember the first murmurings about the 1976 riots in Soweto kind of spreading, and everybody, it was kind of whisperings at the edges of the room, and if you said, you know, what's going on, it's just, don't worry about it, darling, you know, it's... uh, just have another gin. (laughs) Well, I wasn't drinking gin at that age.
0: Let's perhaps move then to a book that, would you call it a breakthrough book, The Good Doctor?
1: Certainly in terms of my publishing prospects it was a breakthrough book. Yeah,
0: Yeah. And it dealt with two different kinds of white people in South Africa.
1: Yeah, in a way I think it, it dealt with a split in my own psyche if I can put it that way.
0: The poet and the materialist.
1: To frame it in South African terms, the kind of more cynical old South African self that didn't really believe in the possibilities of uh, political regeneration or you know in remaking the world and then the other more idealistic side Mm -hmm. which uh, did and does believe to whatever extent uh, that you can remake the world. I mean that whatever systems we live with have been put together by people and therefore can be dismantled by people too.
0: The idealistic uh, romantic Versus the cynical. I guess,
1: yeah. The idealistic, uh, romantic came off second best in that particular story. But my intention was that that should be read as a cautionary tale. Um,
0: yeah, it's been called a parable. It doesn't really provide answers. But
1: it's meant to provoke more than anything, <coughs> I think. I mean, and it, and it did. I mean, it it gets people going. I mean, that that whole kind of debate. It certainly seemed to hit a nerve um, in terms of you know South African thinking
0: you 've been lauded for an ability or a knack for image which defines character. How do you do that
1: <laughs> well i don 't know that 's one of those observations that uh, a writer I think reads with some amusement about themselves because um, no writer sits down and consciously wills up images that define character you know <laughs> you just sure. you just do what comes naturally to you and uh, you 're happy to be praised because most of the time you get Criticized. So I, I, I don't know. I, I, I would have to think about it. Even then, I'm not sh- not sure that I'd be able to understand exactly what that particular... Uh
0: Critic was saying. Yeah. yeah. He also quoted this lovely line, to power the engine with his own self-regard.
1: Yeah, you, you try as a writer to express what defines character i'm, I'm always very uh, cagey when it gets into this territory because i'm i'm not even sure that you can make assumptions about what character is or what it means i mean uh, the deeper you get into the question the more flimsy a lot of the assumptions seem to be but yeah as a writer you try to you try to express obviously as elegantly and as succinctly as possible what defines a certain character
0: What, economy of expression or the best, clearest, most direct way to—that's
1: my impulse. Yeah, I mean, I know I know of a lot of other writers who don't seem uh, constrained by that. Uh, <laughs> you know, the the tendency towards uh, you know being concise or precise. Uh, a, lo- a lot of writers go on at, at great length. Um, I have to say, when when writers are prolix, you know, when they when they hold forth, you know, with a lot of verbiage, mm. it can be very very powerful if they're in mastery of their medium i mean writers like Faulkner for example mm-hmm. uh, as, as long as they they have the power to sail the boat when the you know when the sail is filled to that extent that that's fine i just don't think i can do that my my mm-hmm. my skills lie in the other direction you know in being a, a miniaturist if you like i mean in stripping things down and and expressing things as my, you know my my feeling basically is to say as much as possible in as few words as possible mm-hmm. and uh, i try to get that balance right so
0: and thereby having the greatest impact on the reader, I would assume.
1: Well, it's, it's the greatest impact I can have. You can, you can only work with you know, what, what your own um, skills and power allow you, and uh, you know, that means accepting your limitations too, and you know, I, I accept mine insofar as I recognize them. Uh,
0: there's also reference to a dreamlike quality in your, uh, your writing with no clear moral theme or uplifting lesson.
1: Apartheid literature is is mostly what people think of in terms of South African writing. I think it's it's, it's the kind of writing that came out, on, you know, as, as as protest against the apartheid system. So, I've talked about the the limitations of having to write about that particular sort of social mess. But um, there is another side to it, which is that it, it gave writers in this country great themes. I mean, morally speaking, those are, those were great themes to work with. You know, leaving aside the human component of suffering involved if you were a writer you you had this
0: justice well the, sure uh,
1: yeah those are the big the big kind of questions yeah. so yeah. you know if you were if you were born into Canadian society say so I dare say so those themes would not be available to you in an authentic sort of way yeah yeah, yeah. but I mean the, these were vital compelling questions so they became the kind of defining questions for South African literature at that time
0: well fear would be another one. Uh, but there's also there's also sex too. There's this uh, in much of the lauded literature that comes out of South Africa. There's there's interracial sex, and what? it's it's a that's a very very powerful underlying force that seems to be present in this.
1: The reason for that is uh, because obviously it was banned, and uh, South African society was so. You know stratified and divided rigidly by law uh, that the impulse you know and the writers were, gi- were giving expression to that was to bind it together again I mean actually to make it whole and you know even even if it was only on the level of wish fulfillment or you know l- you know literary wish fulfillment it was it was a kind of a way of overcoming these these boundaries but the but the point I was I was making is that those very stark clear moral themes that emerged at that time don't apply anymore. We're now in a completely different phase of South African history obviously and what we've got now is not is not a question of black or white, you know, racially or morally speaking. It's much more um, ambiguous.
0: And yes, I go to a, a reading and there aren't any blacks in the audience. I go to the airport, there aren't any blacks or there are but small percentage of the, of the travelers. Are.
1: Well, that's another whole Question you're getting into, or, or maybe a whole set of questions.
0: It's economics, I suppose.
1: Uh, it's about like economics, yeah. I mean, um,
0: and literacy too.
1: Well, yeah, sure, but it's 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 a very complicated issue. It's it's about the fact that economic power in this country was not handed over at the same time that political power was handed over, and so that those divisions still. Etc. Etc.
0: But at the beginning, yeah, how do you hand over economic power? You know, econo- money is in the hands of private individuals. You can't, uh, short of cleaning out their bank accounts and taking over their property.
1: Uh, yeah, there, there there are ways and ways to proceed. But I mean, we are seeing some sort of equality starting to take shape now. I think, mm. um, and that's got to do with the government making, you know, kind of racial quotas. You know, it, it gives rise to a whole other set of debates about whether it's healthy for the society to have enforced uh, racial yes. quotas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'm not uh, really qualified to, to give opinions on the economy. It's not really my, my field. But it is, it is clear to me that we, that we do still live with those old divisions. What I was saying is that I want, to, I want to reflect the moral ambiguities I see around me rather than the kind of stark moral contrasts. And that that, if there is anything that's kind of defining about new South African literature as opposed to the old, it's it's probably got to do with that, with ambivalence as opposed to certainty. The kind of resistance heroes uh, of a few decades ago are now, uh, you know, cabinet ministers and a lot of them are very, very uh, corrupt or compromised Mm -hmm. and flawed. So how do you write about those people? Or what what kind of attitude do you take to those people?
0: Heroes in one sense. Right and criminals in the other.
1: Right, yeah. So I guess a lot of the, you know, the kind of starkness, the the, the stark moral choices of before have become far more muddied now. The dreamlike quality is something else. That, that's just my tendency as a writer, I guess. We do live with the same kind of economic divisions that apartheid set, set up. It's my opinion that the inequalities in South African society now are not primarily defined by race, they're defined by class.
0: You mean by money?
1: Well, yeah, it does come down to money, but I, it, it's about people mixing inside their own class, right? You'll see black and white rubbing up against each other with a fair amount of goodwill and uh, not much effort inside particular class. There's a, there's a new elite, multiracial class mm-hmm. in, in South African society which is making the decisions for the rest of society.
0: That's because, again, it's a quota that companies have to have black directors
1: yeah, I was thinking more in terms of a political class, actually. But I mean, that's grown out of South African resistance years, I think. And and there's, it's defined by genuine, genuine goodwill and genuine openness. It's just a, it's a question of how. Uh, in touch they are with the rest of the society, you know, and there is a steadily growing black middle class. And you'll see black and white mixing on you know th- that sort of level in the boardrooms of certain businesses and at schools. You'll see uh, black and white kids playing together quite happily in schools, and all of these are kind of hopeful signs mm-hmm. for the future. You know, if you can, um, if you can grow integration inside you know, the particular classes. But the, the fact remains actually that South Africa's massive inequalities still are largely defined by race because the fallout from the old economic thing is still in place. So most of the poor in South Africa are not white. They're, they're black or so-called colored or whatever it may be. But that's the workforce from apartheid years and there's, there's, there's no way to speed up that uh, transformation. Yeah.
0: Uh, I'm speaking with Damon Galgett, who is the author most recently of The Impostor. Perhaps you could give us a brief picture of the essence of what you were trying to get at in this novel, The, the Impostor.
1: Well, a number of things, but it, it's clearly firstly a new South African novel. It's writing, it's focused very much on the modern South African milieu, which is one of creeping corruption. And a very evident uh, greed, which is a lot of the time focused on land in South Africa and what you know the uses to which land is put.
0: But subsuming of the the early promise by human nature, which unfortunately gravitates toward well, self.
1: There's there's very much a kind of grab it while you can mentality operating in this country at the moment, and you see it all the time, everywhere, and it it will be unless it's really uh, curtail very soon it will be the undoing of the whole new South African dream because what you'll end up with basically is a new elite that replaces the old one
0: And the rule of law is just disregarded?
1: Well, it's regarded to the extent that uh, you need to keep the masses in their place. So if there's popular discontent with the ruling classes, basically the ruling classes have to do something to put that discontent down. And then you start going, you know, the kind of South American way where you've got to beef up the security forces and the army in order to keep the poor in their place, you know, to keep the economy functioning and to keep the coffers full, et cetera, et cetera. And you're basically back where you started because that's the scenario that I grew up with. All that will have changed is that, uh, you know, it's not defined by racial laws anymore, but the basic inequalities will still be there. And yeah, there is very, very clear sense for me in this country that, you know, behind all the rhetoric, the poor are not really an important part of the government vision, really not. And of course whites have always had it easy here and I think the whites are very, very happy to fall in with this new arrangement, broadly Mm -hmm. speaking Mm -hmm. because they get to keep their old privileges, they don't have to change so much
0: Yeah, they just say, okay, go ahead, take over government, just leave us alone and and give us the freedom to make our money and put up barbed wire around our...
1: Yeah, well you must have seen a lot of that in Mm -hmm. your, your travels, yeah, I mean, you know Lots and lots and lots of wealthy properties with electric wire fencing around them and security guards sitting outside. And then, of course, there are these massive shanty towns. Yes,
0: right across the street. Right. Which is it's extraordinary. And as we were driving through various towns and cities, it's, yeah, okay, so here's where the coloreds live, here's where the white live, and it's very evident, and here's where the poor blacks live. Th- that's right. The future, theoretically, is it's the mixing, blending. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, you do get quite a lot of blending happening in the cities these days, it has to be said. I've got a lot of neighbours here who are are black, and uh, you'd never, obviously, have seen that in years gone by. What you find, on the other hand, is if you get out of the cities and go out into the countryside, the old divisions are absolutely on display. The only thing that's changed is the flag that hangs above the police station in town. But otherwise, you know, the townships, so-called, are still operating, Mm -hmm. and there's not much evidence of black land ownership. It's a very strange place, this country. I mean, it's full of uh,
0: contradictions. But rife with rich topics and issues and realities that help you to...
1: Well, definitely. South Africa, I mean, to be fair, in lots of ways, has really faced up to some very fundamental questions mm-hmm. about you know, why it is like it is and how we can put things right and so on. And I see my job as a writer as contributing to that process in the sense that we, we need to keep an ongoing check, an ongoing moral check if you like on how things are you know i don't think it's the writer's job to celebrate the state we're in and how how wonderful things are when that's clearly not the case out there Mm. we need we need to keep confronting things and, and to keep raising moral issues stir the pot you know
0: telling truth to power What about this theme of the traumatized individual Striving for closure Does that ring any bells for you?
1: Yeah, sure You know, I think as a writer you come up against Something which is probably not solvable In a way Which is that the truths that drive society History Are not the truths that drive individual lives I mean, to put that another way The fate of an individual Has no bearing whatsoever on the fate of a nation Or, you know, the fate of Humanity generally. Mm. The two, the two are quite separate. Yet, if you're a writer, if you're a novelist, you have to focus on the fate of an individual or a few individuals. That's kind of part of the bag of tricks. So there's a, there's an innate contradiction,
0: right? Really. To bring it to life, I suppose. Well, sure, it's it's, it's, what, it's
1: what holds the reader's attention. You're mm. not you're not writing a kind of general or history, history. yeah. yeah. You're you're writing writing the story of, at most, a handful of individuals. But at the same time, especially in a a country like South Africa, you want in some way to reflect the larger history that's operating. But there is a basic contradiction built into that. But I think what finds its way into the writing a lot of the time is the kind of national trauma, if I can put it that way. I mean, trauma may not be the right word, but there is a a kind of trauma involved in any society undergoing a massive change like the one South Africa has been through.
0: And it's early days. It's only been 15 Extreme, years. Extremely,
1: mm. yeah. Historically speaking, it's just the blink of an eye. Mm. Living through it, it can feel a lot longer, I, I can tell you. But I think the kind of national trauma, if that's a term we can allow ourselves, finds its way into you know the trauma of individual lives. So as, as a writer, that's a kind of a resonance point for, for reflecting maybe larger concerns or larger shifts.
0: So the trauma of what the world boycotting or embargoing the country to force them to change and the shame I suppose what larger national trauma are you referring to?
1: Well that's why I'm saying I'm not sure that trauma is the right word to use because you know South Africa's liberation uh, is not generally seen as a or shouldn't perhaps be seen as a trauma I mean trauma really for want of a better word there's a kind of shake-up if you like there's a a psychological shake-up Mm. that accompanies a massive change South Africa being going along as I say growing up or being born into South African society you had the sense that this was the way God made the world it wasn't you know man-made it was God
0: made especially the the Afrikaans religious they were God's people right
1: so for a society actually to jump from that track onto a completely different one where I mean from the white perspective it was actually your enemy you know the ANC communist enemy that you had been Fighting and that a lot of people had actually died to fight. Coming to power, there's a there's a certain we come to this word trauma again.
0: Uh, resentment, uh, fierce anger. Well, it's th- almost as if you know you this is your right. I mean the world has taken it away from you and now you have to sit with it.
1: Well, I mean for many of us the changeover was not obviously traumatic. The
0: reason for celebration for the world right. at least.
1: No no and and for lots of South Africans too mm-hmm. it has to be said there was a there was a great feeling of relief of a weight being lifted off but the fact remains that it's a massive change for the society and any change is to some extent traumatic I guess that's the point I'm trying to make is that you know, it's, it's a coming to terms with learning to drop your fears which, which very often are secret even to yourself and you know to come to terms with, with the other right mm. so, so it's all of that and it's a process we're still living through now which on the one hand is truly liberating. It's a lid that's being lifted off, and the freedom to breathe, etc, etc. But on the other hand, um, it requires quite a lot of adjustment and that's not always easy.
0: So just in winding down, specifically, what what is... Hmm, I'm not saying lesson, because I mean, it's, it's as you say, there's an ambiguity, there isn't necessarily a lesson, that, but this experience, what new understanding have you arrived at by living through this huge change? That you think it's important to relay to other human beings in your writing
1: well i don't i wouldn't want to whittle it down to one particular message when you know there's so much going on and so much to be learned and eternally so, if South Africa has learned anything, I guess it's that all human beings are in fact equal
0: equally corrupt
1: well precisely that's the 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 next aspect of the point I was going to make is that. Yeah, we're all equally capable of corruption and oppression and that it's an ongoing struggle. You know, growing up at the time I did was was very peculiar because we had this sense of living in a closed bottle in a way. Nothing changed. Everything stayed the same. There were no new ideas flowing in or out because because of, you know, the the boycott and everything being cut off. We had this, yeah, it, it, it was stagnant, but at the same time it felt eternal. And when that changed, it was almost an overnight thing that actually the cork came out of the bottle and suddenly there were a whole lot of other things from out there flowing in. You know, money, ideas, people. The economy started cranking up again and South Africa opened up to the world and the world opened to South Africa. So there was this this kind of mutual lifting of barriers. And it's been a shock in a way. I mean, it sounds absurd, but it's been a, a, a shock in a way for South Africa to realize that history isn't fixed and eternal, that it's a, an ongoing flux and a tumult and that things shift all the time. And there's been an almost existential realization involved in coming to terms with that, and I think we still are. Um, there was a notion that you know the the rule or the regime that replaced the old white one was also going to be fixed and eternal, that we'd arrived at some moral plateau that would mm-hmm. continue in a straight line forever, and we, we've realized in recent years that that's not so. So, in a way, I think South Africa is only just coming to its its kind of uh, political maturity or mm-hmm. it's more than political, it's it's almost a, a moral, philosophical maturity. The realization that politics doesn't stay the same, history doesn't stay the same, it's an ongoing, endless river and you have to kind of stay afloat in it, really. you know, your Your place is never going to be fixed and defined, you
0: have to continually struggle to stay up. Isn't there also a sense of tragedy, a sense of loss of hope, of this promise of this wonderful man who come to lead the nation?
1: That's part of the the kind of South African trauma is is the realization that you know yeah the, uh, the we've arrived at the promised land and it's not what was yeah. what was promised and that actually we have to make a lot of uh, human acceptances and compromises. But that's as I say part of maturity. I mean what we're living with now. In South Africa uh, is politics as it's practiced in most of the world really it's kind of brutal and uh, merciless and pragmatic but it it has the virtue of being real Mm. whereas you know to some extent South African politics has always had an air of unreality about Mm -hmm. it we've at last arrived in the real world
0: thank you for taking the time to talk with us no no thank you
1: thank you for uh, for exactly the same thing
0: Damon Galgut is uh, Cape Town South Africa based what are we? Novelist? Writer?
1: Uh, I always say writer generally because it, um, you know, it keeps all kinds of other possibilities open, but I seem to be a novelist most of the time.
0: His most recent novel is the title The Imposter. Are you writing anything right now?
1: I just uh, finished something actually that'll be out I think next year
0: another novel?
1: That's an interesting question. It's more by way of a kind of very unusual memoir, but you could see it as fiction too. I'll leave those uh, decisions to the publisher, I think. It's it's a kind of very flimsy dividing line a lot of the time.
0: Well, thanks very much for enlightening us about uh, your life in Madhouse.